Howdy folks, this is Matt Sewell. This is episode 19 of the Popecast, a podcast about popes for those who like history but aren't real crazy about history books. This week, instead of our usual bio of one of the successors of Peter, we have a special interview with Trent Horn, apologist at Catholic Answers, host of the popular Council of Trent podcast and nationally known speaker and author. Trent is an adjunct professor of apologetics at Holy Apostles College and the author of seven books, including Answering Atheism, The Case for Catholicism, and Why We're Catholic, Our Reasons for Faith, Hope, and Love. He's earned a master's degree in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville, a master's degree in philosophy from Holy Apostles College, and is currently pursuing a master's in bioethics from the University of Mary. Very smart guy, and I think you'll really enjoy this interview. Well, Trent Horn, thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, so uh, maybe just to kind of kick things off, so what's a, a, a normal day in the life of Trent Horn like? There's no normal day in the life of Trent Horn. Every day brings its own unique challenges. But I focus on writing. I write books, articles, peer-reviewed articles, and popular ones. Uh, I also, for various publications, for our online magazine, our print magazine, and our press, uh, materials that help people defend and explain the Catholic faith. I also travel and speak. I take part in public debates. And I'm also on radio, and I host my own podcast, the TrendhornPodcast.com. I do all of that as a means to help people to be able to evangelize. And my particular mission when it comes to evangelism is to give people the tools, the arguments, the evidences, the data, the facts, whatever they need to show people that the Catholic faith is true, it's good, and it's beautiful. Great. Um, yeah, so along with that, I know you were a, um, you're a convert to the faith. Um, how did, I mean, how did you get into that work in the first place? Because um, I don't know how many people, how many people who are listening know what an apologist is or have heard the word apologist, but, um, but how did you come to get into that work in the first place? Well, certainly an apologist is someone who puts forward a defense. There are religious and non-religious apologists. It's someone who defends a cause or belief system. But in Catholicism, an apologist is someone who shows that there are good reasons to be Catholic, uh, that the Catholic faith is true. And so I really got into that because I was a convert. I was introduced to Catholicism in high school. I looked at the evidences for myself and came to the conclusion the Catholic faith is true. So I had to undergo answering many of these objections for myself. Then later on, I felt called to take what I had learned in this process and teach others to answer these objections and come to a knowledge of the truth for themselves. Excellent. Uh, yeah, thanks. So I know that speaking of objections, this pod, uh, this podcast is about um, the papacy specifically. I know I'm sure you encounter um, objections, roadblocks for people either entering the Catholic faith or wrestling with their faith from within the church. How often would you say those troubles relate to the papacy itself, whether it's infallibility, um, the authority aspect, papal history? I know there's been a good handful of quote unquote bad popes. Um, how often would you say those troubles relate and maybe what's the what are the the most common ones that you see? I mean, your day-to-day work. Sure. I think that just for many people, they are disturbed at the idea that one human being could have been given such an awesome responsibility from God, that there is a hesitancy to think that God's authority is invested in any human being. So that for many Protestants, they would rather say, well, no, God's authority is only found in Scripture alone. Uh, even people who are Catholic. Uh, who are who don't believe in sola scriptura? 
may have a hard time believing that the Pope could have such authority, or they misunderstand, frankly, the authority that he has. I think many times people who have objections to the papacy, they reminds me of the of Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who once said that there are millions of people who hate the church for what they think the church is, but only hundreds who hate the church for what it actually is or what it really teaches. So when it comes to the Pope, uh, canon law says that he is the supreme pastor of the church, that his power is full and immediate over the church. He is the past, the vicar of Christ. He is the pastor of Christ's church. And so for many people, they, they, don't, they, they couldn't accept that. But I think a good way to accept that, to understand it, is to ask, what did Jesus leave us? Did he leave us a Bible or did he leave us a church? And, if, and so you could start right there and say, what did Jesus leave us? You go back 2,000 years, you go back to 33 AD, you go back to Pentecost, you know, right before the Ascension, we don't have a Bible. We would not have a single letter of the New Testament for about 20 years when St. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. Instead, he left us a church. Now, what do we mean by church, though? Because a lot of people, when they think of the church, oh yeah, well, of course Jesus gave us a church. But to them, the church is just this really, really loose association of people who call themselves Christians. Uh, but that is not what we see in Scripture. We, when Jesus talks about the church, he talks about it having authority. In Matthew 18, he gives the apostles the, the key—in Matthew 16 18, he gives Peter and the apostles the keys to the kingdom. Do whatever they bind on earth is bound in heaven. Uh, you, you see, Jesus says in Matthew 18, uh, if a brother sins against you as a last resort, go to the church. Not your church, not a church. The church that this is something authoritative rooted in the apostles, and the apostles were the one who had authority to lay hands on others to give people, uh, to create successors who had their authority. So for me, that if we have a hard time thinking that the bishops and the pope today have this kind of authority, especially the pope, we ha I think we should go back to the very beginning to the Bible and the church fathers to see, wait a minute, what did Jesus leave us? He left us a church that's not just a loose collection of believers, it's one that has a hierarchy, literally in Greek, a sacred order grounded in the apostles with one apostle having chief authority, which would be Peter himself. I guess that's probably the, the irony when you're having these conversations with people is that it's not like other Protestant denominations do away with, quote unquote, the, I mean, they don't call it the papacy or um, having a pope or something, but they de facto have a papal figure because there's a person leading the church who's doing all of the interpretation of scripture, right? Yes. Uh, now, a lot of people say that, well, the pastor of a church, for example, his authority is true as long as it coincides with Scripture. But then what do you do when you disagree with, uh, with the pastor's authority here when it comes to that? I was at a conference not too long ago, and the gentleman sponsoring the event, uh, <laughs> he told, a, he told a, a good joke, actually, that um, they found a man on a desert island. And he had been there for 40 years. And they said, my gosh, what'd you do all that time? And they, he said, look, and there were three huts that he had built. And they said, what are they? He said, well, the first hut is my home. That's where I lived. And the second hut is my church. That's where I go to worship. They said, wow, you, you, built, a whole, uh, you built a church for yourself to go to? He said, yeah, of course, it's important to me. And they said, well, what's the third hut? He says, oh, well, that's the church I go to. I don't go to that other church anymore. <laughs> That's good. I, like I thought that, that I, I, and it takes a lot to get it for a joke to get me to laugh, and I thought that was pretty good. So you're right. It's been said before that Protestantism, under Protestantism, every man becomes his own pope. That that authority, that all, you know, and we, we wouldn't even say that the pope has 
this kind, you know, the, the authority of the Pope, which we can get to, you know, shortly, is not that he's some kind of universal autocratic tyrant and every word that he speaks is an infallible declaration and that everything he does is perfect. That is a caricature of the papacy. Mm-hmm. Rather, what we say simply is that the Pope is the pastor of Christ's church. And because of that, he has special graces and charisms that Christ gave his office that were first given to the Apostle Peter and then later uh, were passed on to Peter's successors. And one way I think you, you made a good point here about Protestants having pastors, for example, uh, that, that if God created a church, this is kind of a more intuitive argument I give people. If God made a church, would he want that church to be as successful as any other human organization? How, are, how is every other human organization structured leadership-wise? It's always with a triangle that culminates with a single leader at the top. A nation has a president, prime minister, or king. A country has a CEO. An army has a general. Uh, you know, that all these other organ- even in ancient Israel, you had a king of Israel and you had the prime minister underneath him. That's why when you look at Matthew 16, when Jesus talks about how uh, I give the keys to the kingdom to you, what you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, uh, talking about Peter's authority, that goes back to Isaiah 22, talking about how Eliakim would become the righteous prime minister, Shebna would lose his job, and that the authority of the prime minister under the king is to oversee the whole kingdom. What he opens, none shall shut. What he shuts, none shall open. So if God, see, if we see this in human organizations, if we see this in the kingdom of Israel, that was God's organization, why wouldn't we see the same kind of authority within, uh, within the church that Christ himself established? Right. And how, in your experience, I mean, if you've had, if you've had people raise that objection, or um, when, when you raise that objection back to them, of referring back to the Old, Old Testament, how it's foreshadowing the papacy t- today, how the church is supposed to be structured, how do they typically respond to that? They just take it as, as just straight historical or um, like kind of that typology. What do they do with that? Uh, sure. One thing I have noticed uh, is, I mean, sometimes people, you know, I don't use that argument as just a, uh, a knockdown proof for the papacy, but I would say that it's something that certainly points in that direction. I think a lot of times there are still prejudices have to be overcome that if you don't first disabuse someone of their belief in sola scriptura, you're not going to make progress on almost any Catholic belief. So we have to first disabuse people of the assumptions they have that drive the conversation. I think at that point, what many other people will do, and I talk about this in my book, The Case for Catholicism, which is published by Ignatius Press, is they'll go back to scripture and say, well, even if this was true in the Old Testament, it's not true in the New Testament because Jesus contradicts this or Paul contradicts this in various places. So, for example, they might say that in Galatians chapter 2, well, Paul rebuked Peter at, uh, in Antioch, saying that, you know, he was, you know, he rebuked him. How could Peter have been pope? How could he have been leader of the church if he himself was rebuked by Paul? Well, the church teaches that even the pope can be corrected. He's not infallible in everything he declares. The pope's infallibility only comes when he formally binds the church to something to be believed as, as with divine and Catholic faith, a dogma form that formally binds the whole church to belief. Otherwise, the Pope can err. The Pope could give a theological error if he's teaching as a private theologian or not teaching authoritatively in that way. Uh, he could also err in practice, and that is what Paul was rebuking in Galatians chapter 2. He said that Peter, he, you know, you, don't, you weren't walking upright in the faith because you say it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, but then when you go to have dinner, you only eat with the Jews, not with the Gentiles. You're being a hypocrite. 
Paul was calling him out for hypocrisy, not for inaccuracy. It was a failure to live out teachings, not to give the right teachings. And there, as you said, there have been popes who have been terrible in this regard. Uh, another example I'll talk about briefly, and then we can go into in a little bit more detail. This is a funny one. People will go to Luke 22 and you know, the dispute about greatness. And you know, there's a dispute among the apostles, saying, the disciples saying, who's the greatest? And Jesus said in Luke 22, 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So some people take from this that, oh, there is no greatest among the apostles. So Peter is not the greatest. So Peter is not the pope. That's not what Jesus says here. He's not saying that what he is saying is there's not one among you who will be a tyrant who has absolute power over everyone else. But he is saying, notice what he does say here. He's saying, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. He's saying there will be a greatest, there will be a leader, but he'll be a servant. That's why since the sixth century, uh, popes have been called, the, ser- the tit- one title for the papacy is the servant of the servants of Christ. That the pope is the leader, but in a paradoxical way in that he serves his brother bishops. Right. Yeah, that, that's always been one of my uh, one of my most favorite of the titles. There's, you know, what a dozen or something of those. Um, but yeah, thanks for sharing those. So, uh, yeah, related oh, well, again. Well, I, oh, go ahead. Let yeah. me uh, let me continue real fast with this because here's what's funny: people don't see in Luke 22 the dispute about greatness. Jesus says, you know, uh, look, if you're to continue with me in my trials, my Father appointed a kingdom for me. So do I appoint a kingdom for you. He's talking about giving them a kingdom. They're sitting on thrones and judging. And Jesus is saying there will be a greatest. Then here's what's the kicker. Remember, there were usually there's a header here to denote another section. Take the header out of your mind between verses 30 and 31, because Jesus talks about the greatest. And then he goes on to say, Simon, Simon, Luke 22, 31, Satan demanded to have you all in Greek so that he might sift you all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. So it's, it's amazing. Luke 22, the dispute about greatness, the greatest will be the one who's the leader and serves. Then just four verses later, Jesus says, Peter, well, Simon, d- Satan is going to attack all of you, but I need you in particular. The Greek singular you is used here uh, in verse 32 when Jesus says he prayed that your faith may not fail. Mm-hmm. Turn and strengthen your brethren. So you are the servant who serves all of the others. It's something a lot of a lot of people miss when they look through this. Wow, yeah, one of the limitations, I guess, of English or of a given translation that you kind of miss those little nuances. But I've never heard that before. That's yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so in Luke twenty-two, you have to remember that when we talk about you, it can be singular or plural that pronoun. And usually in English, it's based on context. The only time where it's easier to discern it without context might be the Southern you versus y'all. Y apostrophe a l l. It's easier with a Southern accent to hear, y'all hear me. You, instead, you know, you hear, do you hear me or do y'all hear me? That's easier to say, oh, I see the plural you versus the singular you. Mm-hmm. What's happening in Luke 22, uh, in verse 31, it's Satan demanded to have y'all, that he might sift y'all like we. He's going after all the apostles, but Jesus sp- prays specifically for Peter to serve and to be that figure for the others. And so this is a biblical clue that points toward the doctrine of papal infallibility. 
that Christ gave a special charism to Peter to be a leader among the other apostles. And I think what's helpful for me, too, is that, you know, when I was looking at becoming Catholic, you know, eventually you kind of get closer and closer and closer, and then you sort of stop between becoming Eastern Orthodox or being Catholic. Right. And the big divider here is going to be the papacy. That is the number one, that and the filioque. But even that is not as big of a, of a distinction, because with the filioque, the d- distinction about, oh, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son? You can use theological vocabulary to satisfy both parties. Mm-hmm. You say it comes from the Son, but everything that comes from the Son comes from the Father anyways. So you know you can, you can use theological terms to make both parties happy, the, most, for the most part. But the big divider between Catholics and Eastern Orthodox is the papacy. But for me, go back to that organizational framework. What's the best organization to have? When you look at the Eastern Orthodox, since the 11th century, uh, they haven't even called an ecumenical council. They have no ability to do that because they don't have one figure who can stand and make these decisions above all the other bishops. Now, mm-hmm. the pope is not a super bishop. He's not a tyrant. But he does have this unique authority, uh, similar to how we have like a chief justice on the Supreme Court. It's not an exact, it's not an exact parallel. But he has this particular authority. That way, the church does not fragment. With the Orthodox, you've seen it fragment nationally. Uh, you've you've lost this kind of unity of belief. Uh, but having Peter provides this kind of unity. There's a wonderful encyclical Pope St. John Paul II wrote. Uh, well, I think it's an encyclical. But it's a document, Ut Unum Sint, mm-hmm. that talks about the unity that comes to the church through the office of the papacy and how the papacy inspires this unity and not through some kind of brute, tyrannical or dictatorial force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that, um, the the clarification there, because, yeah, at the end of the day, what do you do? It, it just breaks down. It's, it's similar to Protestantism in that sense. Um, so that's kind of more, I guess, for, for folks who are converts, but for maybe Catholics within the church, in your opinion, um, why do you think the papacy, and this might be just a softball question, but why do you think the papacy can be a stumbling block to people today? Because, I mean, even 70 years ago, you know, people, I remember asking my mom this sometimes, it's like, we, you know, she would say, we didn't really pay attention to what the Pope was doing because he was in Rome and we didn't have, you know, social media and like they didn't broadcast TV from the Vatican and all this stuff. But now we're just so, it's like the Pope, we treat him like as our own pastor, which in a certain sense he is. But, uh, so anyways. Why do you think the papacy can be a stumbling block, especially perhaps given the current climate in the church? I think the papacy becomes a stumbling block for many Catholics because the Pope either, I mean, it comes down to these two things. He either says something you don't want him to say, or he doesn't say something you do want him to say, and you think he could do his job better than him. And so they misunderstand sometimes the protection of papal infallibility. Papal infallibility is a negative protection. What it means is that if the Pope chooses to define a dogma of the Church, uh, he will not lead the Church into error. Uh, Carl Keating once used this example. Let's say the Pope—I'll ask you this. Let's say the Pope was infallible when it comes to geometry. He takes a geometry test. There are a hundred questions. What is the least number of questions he will get right if he's infallible when it comes to geometry? There are a hundred questions. Um, the double negatives in there. Like, I don't know, zero? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. If they, uh, there are 100 questions on a geometry test and the Pope is infallible when it comes to geometry, what are the least number of questions he will get right? And it's zero. Some people will think, oh, it's got to be 100. Because if he's infallible when it comes to geometry, he'll get every question right. No. 
if he's infallible, he'll just know not to give a wrong answer. So he just may <laughs> turn the paper over and say, I know with certainty I cannot give you the right answer right now. So I will not answer it, attempt to answer any of these questions. And we've seen this also, you know, with groups who have believed they want the Pope to define other Marian dogmas, like the dogma of co like the doctrine of Mary as co-redemptrix or mediatrix of all graces. Uh, to define that's currently, well, some people dispute whether that's even a doctrine of the church. It's, you, a lot of people accept that it's a doctrine, uh, but those who do want it to be defined as a dogma of the church, that Mary is co-redemptrix or mediatrix of all graces. Um, and the Pope has chosen, since John Paul II, has chosen to not do that. So w- when I see this, it's so funny. The attacks on the Pope, I see them come both from those who we describe as too liberal and those as too conservative. Uh, so, you know, you see with Pope Benedict and Pope St. John Paul II, they had the temerity to uh, reaffirm that the church does not have the authority to ordain women. Or Pope, you know, Pope Benedict and it was teaching, you know, reaffirming traditional church teaching on things like sexual ethics or the non-negotiability of certain moral issues uh, and talking about the nature of the magisterium uh, and not saying that, you know, you could just have a completely relativized conscience or that theologians, whoever they are, have the same authority as the magisterium. You know, so there's people who, you know, condemn Pope St. John Paul II and, and Pope Benedict XVI for, you know, being, quote unquote, too conservative. And then other people come along and say that Pope Francis will say things that are, are too liberal for them. But it, with Pope Francis, is a funny example. There are people who will say that, oh, I don't like that Pope Francis is undermining church teaching. But then there are other people who will get mad and say that, you know, he comes along also and says that, uh, talks about the evils of same-sex adoption, for example. So I love mm. that everyone tries to turn Pope Francis into their own little uh, puppet sometimes, a little marionette. Uh, but he doesn't always say things that, uh, to go along with, with what they say. But I think, especially with his pontificate, people have gotten used to the Pope speaking in a particular style, especially Pope Benedict and Pope St. John Paul II. And you're right, with this age of instant mass communication, uh, having Pope Francis's particular style can lead to misunderstandings and can lead to kind of, you know, feeling uh, discontented with that, how he's spoken about about certain issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's always been my perspective. I mean, there's a there's a million roads we could go down with, like you know, all of the the different controversies on abuse and and who knew what when, like all this stuff. But in terms of his teaching, I've always always understood Pope Francis as to be teaching in, you know, in continuity with the church. Um, and I mean, nobody can argue with his statements on the devil and, and uh, priests uh, and bishops and cardinals who shouldn't be living like princes and all this sorts of things. And how he, he tends to, he seems like he's always just speaking to a person. And that doesn't translate well to like a worldwide message he, on purpose. He has right? a very, pa- right, he has a very pastoral background and he's um, a Latin American Pope. He's not, he's not a European Pope. That will lead to di- different kinds of speaking styles. And so, especially if you grew up with someone like Pope Benedict XVI, who was a trained biblical theologian, Pope St. John Paul II, who was a philosopher, well, you know, well, good, you know, well done philosopher in his own right. Uh, that if you're used to the Pope speaking in very precise, analytical terms, uh, that when you have someone like Pope Francis, who tends to speak more to the heart of the matter, uh, similar to how Jesus would speak, that Jesus would use hyperbole and would use rhetoric to get people's attention, that may not always be intended to be taken literally, uh, that people can easily misunderstand that. So I think that you're right that when people come to interpreting what the Pope says and what he teaches, 
Uh, remember, not everything the Pope says is infallible, but we should give a kind of deference to the Pope and respect for the office that he holds. That doesn't mean you can't correct the Pope. I mean, St. Catherine of Siena corrected the Pope, told him to get out of Avignon, France, and get back to Rome uh, to get the church right in order. But one must always do so with uh, a kind of polite assertiveness, what I would call it, both for any bishop, not just the Pope, but any bishop to exhort them to fulfill their promise to be a shepherd to Christ's people, you know, to be uh, to be understanding of that. So the a point you raised, I think, showcases as well that when we listen to a bishop, or especially the Pope, when he speaks, we should try to give them the benefit of the doubt and approach what they say with what has been called a hermeneutic of continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to try to be charitable with what has been taught to see how this fits with previous teaching, as opposed to uh, Pope Benedict XVI, he either coined the phrase or he used it quite frequently. Uh, there are others who will try to look at different teachings and use them as wedges to try to break away from church teaching. And the classic example is when Pope Francis said, who am I to judge about the issue of the, of the morality of same-sex behavior, same-sex marriage, and the salvation of people who have same-sex attraction? And what it here is he's talking about people who are of goodwill, who are trying to strive uh, to do good as God has led them. Not that he's just completely indifferent, he doesn't care about morality in any shape or form. Uh, so, the, But some people will look at who am I to judge, and they'll instantly try to find a way to say, oh, well, this shows the church is changing its teaching on homosexuality. No, that's a hermeneutic of discontinuity. Mm-hmm. Try to interpret this charitably. Something similar happened recently when Pope Francis was, was talking about, or he, I think there was a uh, document that was released about world religions, and it talked about God willing uh, the existence of different religions. And some people say, well, that's just showing that the Pope is a relativist or he's indifferent. But when I went back and read the document, it seemed very clear that in the context of those two paragraphs, Pope Francis uh, was talking about religious freedom, that people have the right, as the Second Vatican Council is taught in Dignitas Humanae, that people have the right to choose their religion and people should not be compelled to uh, belong to a certain faith. And so if we have the right to freedom of religion, that God wills for people to have this freedom, and they may choose to follow other faiths. And ultimately, if you believe that everything that happens in this world happens through God's per- either active will or his permissive will, right. nothing happens outside of God's control. It's not like, oh no, what happened? What do I do? You know, God knows what's going to happen. He allows it to happen. So this can, you know, a diversity of religious thought can be something that God can use to still accomplish good in the world and to still draw people close to him, even if it's not not ideal. I mean, the old adage is God writes straight with crooked lines, mm-hmm. and this, that can be an example of that. And I think that's what Pope Francis was saying. Secondarily, though primarily the willing of different religions is related to the idea of religious freedom and people having the right to choose to worship God how they feel in their conscience. But once again, are you going to look at what the Pope says with a hermeneutic of continuity or of discontinuity? Are you going to give what he says the benefit of the doubt or not? Right. Well, and, yeah, and not to pay with a broad brush, but it just seems, well, one, I mean, all of these sorts of things happen in the um, insanely charitable atmosphere of Twitter. Um, but I mean, you know, people seem to just love to hate on Pope Francis. And I mean, it's not to say that he does stuff that isn't worthy of criticism, like you said, but um, it, yeah, it's, it's just such a shame that people just read it so narrowly. And I thought it was, it was really disingenuous, too, when I would see people post the quote. They put God willed dot 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 a plurality of religions. And I mean ellipsis is a, a useful tool for oh, quoting things. It can be, but be careful of the squirrely ellipses. Whenever I see an ellipses, I'm always I'm always skeptical. Exactly. I think it's important to go back and 
and check the sources. There. I mean, I myself have separated quotes with ellipses. There's nothing wrong if you're right. trying to be economical in your writing. But at the same time, it can take out a very important point of context um, in the passages being discussed. But I think you're right. There, there is a, there's a balance here, for sure, that on the one hand, there are those who would deny the pope really has any authority at all. And then those who who treat the Pope as having some kind of super infallibility. And I think this is a byproduct of kind of being spoiled through the very, very long pontificate of Pope St. John Paul II, as well as through Pope Benedict XVI, of you know, being blessed with many of the teachings they had, though even those teachings are misunderstood. People forget that people used to twist, they twisted Pope Benedict XVI to say that he said the condoms were okay. Right. And he never said anything like that. What he said was that a homosexual prostitute in Africa who chooses to use a condom to prevent the spread of disease is showing a kind of path of moral progress and is kind of understanding that they ought to do good and, and reduce evil. So that might be a case where someone doing this could show they're making a kind of moral progress. And what people took from that was, Pope says condoms are okay. Right. So it's happened, to, it's happened to all of the, all the popes. You know, there are things that they have, you know, all throughout history, look at Peter, look at Jesus. Uh, that that were misunderstood by other people. I mean, at Jesus's trial in front of the Sanhedrin, they said, this man said he's going to destroy the temple. Jesus never said that. He said, destroy this temple, referring to himself, and I will raise it up in three days. He never said, I will destroy the temple. So misquoting of people, I mean, that, that, that's just the long tradition in the history of, of our faith, going all the way back to Jesus himself and even before that. So I think, yeah, with, with Pope Francis, that you know, there's a balance here. You shouldn't treat the Pope as if he can make no mistakes whatsoever. Sometimes the Pope could be ambiguous. Sometimes he may be cowardly. Sometimes he could be gravely sinful. I'm sure you've discussed it on your podcast before. There have been some pretty bad ones in the past. <laughs> right. uh, but if, if you do have problems with that, I do recommend this new book out by Rod Bennett called Bad Shepherds. And it talks about how uh, there have been popes in the past, you know, uh, you have popes who sold the papacy, uh, engaged in nepotism. Uh, one, I think it was a pope, I want to say Stephen VI, but I can't entirely remember, who dug up his predecessor and yep. put him on trial and threw pope him Formosus. in the... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, there, uh, even in those times, the, there are holy men and women who rose up uh, among the clergy and among the laity to be able to, to do good. And so uh, that's something that, that we should consider that, you know, it, it's okay to be critical of, of, our, of the leaders in the church, but we should do so, as canon law says, with the respect for the office that they hold. And we should approach criticism of them with a kind of uh, polite assertiveness, might be how I would put it, especially if you feel like you have to make that canon law talks about how we have a right as, as faithful lay people to make our needs known to our pastors. But we do so out of respect for the office that they hold and know that the church is not a democracy. You don't get to fire the pope or the bishops and put your guy in there. Mm -hmm. That's how the Protestant Reformation got started. That's not how it is, but it doesn't mean that we're, that we're silent and we're, and we're completely passive either. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you circled back to that, because that was what, what I was going to ask you next um, related to that was, uh, where, where in your mind is the limit, right, to being able to uh, respectively—I I forget the, phrase, the exact phrase you used, but to respectfully— uh, correct the Pope. I know we, we, um, one of our patrons had input a question about the dubia. And so I talked about that on a, um, a couple episodes ago about it's just, you know, it's a pretty traditional, you know, means of just submitting questions to the Pope respectfully. But then you, again, you see like these armchair theologians, sometimes real theologians 
um, on social media or whatever, who in the spirit of quote unquote respectful correction, but the tone of their, you know, the tone of their message says something completely different, or they're actually suggesting that the Pope resign, which if the Pope, you know, actually does resign, then there's an argument to be made. It's like, oh, he might've been coerced or whatever. So where's, I mean, where's the limit in your mind with respectful disagreement and fraternal correction on the part of the laity? Well, I think here that the laity don't stand at the same level as the Pope to be able to offer genuine fraternal correction, that that fraternal correction would come from uh, the Pope's fellow bishops. Uh, And although I think that there are different lay people who are called in various, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're called in various roles or skills that they've been blessed with by God to be able to do that. A great document I would recommend your listeners read was uh, from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Donum Veritatis. It's on the ecclesial vocation of the theologian. And it talks about how uh, that the teachings of the Church, if there is, a, you know, if there's a teaching of the Church that one has uh, trouble with, it still requires the religious submission of mind and will, that those who study the faith, theologians, uh, those who uh, have an expertise in understanding theology, have a place where they can uh, say that we need greater clarity on this, or there are problems with the ways we have articulated this, but doing it within an appropriate forum. So like, there would be a difference between choosing to publish in a popular book meant for lay people an attack on something the Pope said in a recent encyclical uh, versus putting forward in an academic journal or an academic book, raising a question or asking for some kind of a resolution for a matter that seems to be unresolved, like what was done with the dubia, for example. Though I do think a clear example would be calling for, uh, you know, calling for the resignation of the bishop or of the pope, uh, simply because you believe that he is not uh, faithfully living out his calling, that he's not, you know, doing his job well. Even I've seen people who have passed around petitions for cardinals and bishops here in the United States to resign simply because they think they haven't done their jobs well. Mm-hmm. And and I would say that that that's one that probably goes over the line right there. Sure. Yeah, cause you, you start to get into the weeds of, um, one, I mean, you know, if you and I were friends, I wouldn't be able to speak into your, you know, your personal relationship with the Lord or what's going on interiorly, and how much less so with the Pope in Rome, where people are kind of trying to pass judgment on his personal holiness or whatever, but then they're you know, kind of muddying the waters is whether or not a person is a good administrator or not, which are, are my last episode that I did was on um, Benedict the Thirteenth, who's a servant of God. It was a very mm-hmm. holy man, but was a terrible administrator. And like universally, for the last three centuries, everybody kind of affirms that, but he can still be a holy guy. Uh, but yeah, it just kind of muddies the waters there. Um, but yeah I, yeah, I agree. Oh yeah, just because a pope could be great at one thing uh, doesn't, doesn't mean that he is great in other things. I mean, uh, Pope Sixtus V uh, was, a, was a holy man. He was an Orthodox man, but he tried to translate the Vulgate himself and did a really bad job at it. So, I mean... Uh, you're not always going to be, you're not always going to do, uh, and he actually, uh, before it was really, f- uh, formally spread, uh, throughout, uh, the Christian world, he actually died oh, yikes. <laughs> before, before it could be, uh, I mean, I think a few copies were released and then, and then retracted, but before it could be, you know, kind of a formal translation of the entire church, um, the good Lord called him home, maybe, maybe with good reason. So yeah, <laughs> the, the Pope will not always be, he will not always be good at, uh, everything he does, he's human. He's a sinner, just like us. And so sometimes he'll be mild in his sins. Sometimes he'll be grave. 
but at the end of the day, Christ promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so through the Holy Spirit, he will uh, steer the church away from binding it uh, to, to formal heresy that denies uh, you know, a dogma, essential teaching on, on faith or morals. Sure. Yeah, so we've been going uh, amazingly for 35 minutes now, so we can start to wrap it up. Um, a last couple of questions. So you spoke a little bit about your, your own conversion at the beginning. Uh, how did the papacy in particular play a part in that, or did it at all? Uh, it played somewhat of a role, though honestly, once I saw that Sola Scriptura was false and that there is one church that has endured, uh, really brought to my mind the Catholic faith, and then seeing the early historical evidence for the papacy, seeing that the Bishop of Rome and the Church of Rome had a unique authority over other churches, helped me to see that the Catholic Church, that with the fullness of Christ's church, uh, well, I think the, doctor, the CDF uses the word, uh, it uh, perdure, uh, subsists. The, the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. So it still exists even beyond the confines of the Catholic faith, but this special historical continuity can be seen in the Catholic faith through the Pope and the bishops. And seeing the early historical evidence for the papacy, uh, that really um, was was very important to me in those latter stages of my conversion. Great. Yeah, praise God. And then last one, kind of the fun question that I always like to uh, wrap up these interviews with, who is your favorite pope and why? And I always like to say bonus points if it's somebody before the 20th century, because I feel like people will just say, oh, John Paul II, right? Uh, but yeah, who's your favorite favorite pope and why? Uh, I'm not going to get bonus points on this one. Uh, my friend Jimmy Aiken has said that when people ask who your favorite pope is, uh, it's kind of like uh, Doctor Who. Like you're, you know, you're, It's like, you're, who is your favorite doctor? And it was usually the doctor that you grew up with. Uh, depending on whether it was old Doctor Who or new Doctor Who. Uh, I also would liken it to, I mean, not to be sacrilegious, to like Saturday Night Live. Like, what was your favorite Saturday Night Live? Your favorite Saturday Night Live was probably the Saturday Night Live that was on when you were in high school or college. Sure. So for me, it was like the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, you had Will Ferrell, Andy Samberg. Obviously, yes, I know to our listeners, it's crude humor. I take it all with a grain of salt. <laughs> but they are, But they are pretty funny people nonetheless. And so... That was my favorite Saturday Night Live. But then there were people who were growing up that, you know, uh, Belushi, uh, Andy Kaufman, uh, that was, you know, you know, Chevy Chase being Gerald Ford, that those early Saturday Night, and it's great, it's great stuff. But, you know, it, it, the one that had the, that imprinted you growing up is going to become your favorite. So for me, my favorite is probably Pope Benedict XVI. I mean, mm -hmm. I entered the church in 2002, 2003. And Pope St. John Paul II was nearing the end of his life. And then I remember when I went to World Youth Day in 2005, uh, that was shortly after uh, Pope Benedict XVI was consecrated. And so my really, my early formative years of being a Catholic, Pope Benedict XVI was, was my Pope. So for someone for me and my generation, I mean, I, I'm very, I'm indebted to the work of Pope St. John Paul II. But for me, growing up, being a new Catholic, uh, it was it was Pope Benedict XVI that really had the, the biggest impact on me and my understanding of theology and growing in that area. Sure. Yeah, that's a great analogy too. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, on Benedict the 16th, is there um, a specific, you know, line or document or something that, that is your favorite in particular from those times or from afterwards? Uh, you know, I, it's hard to pick. How do you pick something a favorite out of his writings? But especially his earlier works as Cardinal Ratzinger, when you go back and look at them in a fresh light, you see how prescient they are, how how important they are for understanding theology, and they really reveal his skill as a biblical theologian. Uh, he's really, I think, the first trained biblical theologian to have as a pope. And so the insights that we receive from his book on eschatology when it comes to things like purgatory or, or you know, other, other things like that, 
uh, or even how he articulates the Trinity in his book, Introduction to Christianity. Uh, it, it just shows a wonderful synthesis of thought and analytic spirit. Though, I mean, in, in his later works, I, I have enjoyed, you know, Jesus of, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, that three-volume series. But a lot of those older, sometimes quasi-academic works, uh, when he wrote his Cardinal Ratzinger, are, are always great to go back to. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I loved the—I haven't read too much of his theological work, but I've just really felt a, a, a closeness with, with his, I guess, way of being from the—was it Peter Seawald who did the book-length interview? Um, God, la- or, last, uh, yeah. I think it was, was it Last Testament? Maybe I'm thinking of a different. Oh, one. you mean the newer one? He the also one, did yeah. one a while back. It was God. I think it was called God in the World. But right. yeah, I think Last Testament was a more recent one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. Anyways, yeah. So thanks for sharing that, and thank you again for for being willing to be on. Uh, before we wrap up, of course, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning. But where can people find you? Is there a you know pet project that you'd like to um, promote? Or I know you you said you have a podcast, which this law. I do. Yeah, on. I would just recommend my podcast at trenthornpodcast.com, called the Council of Trent, C O U N S E L. And that's always a lot of fun daily uh, episodes there on how to explain and defend the Catholic faith. If your listeners would like a really good book on the papacy to better understand it, there's a great new book by Stephen Ray and Dennis Walters called The Papacy, What the Pope Does and Why It Matters. Uh, It's a great, easy, introductory read to the papacy. I highly recommend it. I actually have endorsed it on the the back. Uh, That's The Papacy by Stephen Ray and Dennis Walters. But yeah, if you'd like to learn more about me, you can always check out my podcast at trendhornpodcast.com and the work I do at Catholic Answers, which is available at catholic.com. Thank you again to Trent Horn for being on this episode of the Popecast. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review the Popecast at iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, really anything, any place you can find uh, podcasts. Also, if you're enjoying the Popecast and want to ensure that we can keep churning these out, be sure to visit patreon.com slash Sewell. For just a buck or two an episode, you can get early access to each PopeCast episode, plus access to sweet patron-only benefits. Uh, In particular, uh, early access to every PopeCast episode, you get it a day earlier than everybody else. That's patreon.com slash M-A-T-T-S-E-W-E-L-L. And a special shout-out to our newest patron, T with Tolkien. Caitlin, thank you for being our newest patron. Uh, And then lastly, of course, be sure to check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The PopeCast. We have daily Pope quotes. We also feature feast day bios. Uh, and also for saint feast days if there was a a quote by a pope on that particular saint you find those there instagram twitter facebook at the popecast so thanks again for listening this week until next time